Let's read together from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 9. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul. I will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God and willing also as a faithful father. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as human beings, we have a tendency to take things for granted until we no longer have them. You don't appreciate your own bed until you've been away and slept in other beds for some time. Young people don't appreciate mom's home-cooked meals that much until they move out and they have to cook their own. We don't appreciate the blessings of gathering and worship until that opportunity is restricted. We don't always realize how dear, important people of our lives are to us until they move away or they're taken from us. The idea that familiarity breeds contempt can also be applied to matters of faith. In the past weeks, we've begun considering what the Christian faith is all about. We've recognized that a Christian must believe all that's promised us in the gospel which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. We profess that faith each Sunday, usually by singing the Apostles' Creed. Christians have been professing their faith in God using the Creed for more than 15 centuries. It is really familiar to us. But do we truly accept the 12 articles of faith as foundational for doctrine and life. Every boy or girl who grows up in one of our families knows that God created the world. Children will say, God made the flowers, God made the trees, God made the grass, and God made me. Through Bible stories and their parents' teaching, they accept this as true. Yet as children grow up, they're confronted with a different teaching. The theory of evolution. Every public school textbook teaches this. University professors propagate this theory. You can't walk through a museum or watch a nature documentary without having this worldview shoved down your throat. Some of those teaching this theory can be quite persuasive. They can undermine the Bible's teaching. They can cause us to doubt the fundamentals of the faith. That's why this afternoon we'll focus our attention on the Bible's testimony about who God the Father is and on all his wondrous works. We focus our attention on how he is the almighty 
creator of heaven and earth and all that's in them, will see that as creator God has a claim on this world and all who live in it, will pay attention to the fact that this God is our Father in Jesus Christ and to his loving care for us. I preach to you the word of God under the following theme. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We'll consider God's wondrous creation work and our Father's loving care for us. Genesis 1 begins with a statement, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The point that Moses seeks to make in Genesis 1 is that the origin of this world lies in God. He is the source of all life. It's as Paul said in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, God made the world and everything in it. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. We need to recognize this universe and everything in it find their origin in God. To indicate God's mighty work, the scriptures speak about God's work of creating. The verb create is only used to describe God's activity. And the Bible is never used in connection with man. When this word is used, it indicates that God is initiating something new. In Genesis, it's used to show us how God created this world out of nothing. God just spoke, and things came into being. Genesis 1 makes it clear that at first the earth was formless and empty, and yet in the six days of creation, God showed forth his almighty power and majesty. In the first three days of creation, God gave the earth form. He separated light from the darkness, the sky from the waters below, land from sea. And in the next three days, God filled the earth, created the sun, moon, and stars as light bearers, created birds to fly through the sky and fish to swim in the sea. He created animals and man to dwell on the earth. God did all this by just speaking forth his commands. It says the psalmist says in Psalm 33, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood fast. On the basis of the Bible's testimony, and various legends and myths that came forth from it, Pretty much every culture we know about believed in God or in a pantheon of gods creating this world. That was pretty much the universal perspective on the origins of the world throughout human history. But it changed with Charles Darwin's publication of his book titled On the Origin of the Species in 1859. He speculated that life began with a big bang. And he taught that all species of life have descended over millions of years 
from common ancestors. Today, the Western world considers this a fundamental concept in science. Those who teach evolution as the truth about the origins of life do so in a rather sneaky manner. They give examples of evolution within a species. There's hundreds of different kinds of dogs. People have been breeding dogs for thousands of years to bring about different characteristics in various breeds. Both a Great Dane and a Little Poodle are dogs, even though they differ greatly. And the same applies to chickens. Some are bred to produce eggs, others to produce meat. Now you can, lay a, you can eat a laying chicken, you're not going to get much good meat from it. And meat birds will produce eggs at some point, but not nearly with the efficiency of a laying hen. In nature, changes can also happen within a species. It appears that organisms can at times change and adapt in response to their environment. An example would be of how the jaw of a chichlid fish changes shape when food sources alter. Another example would be of how leaf-mimicking insects are brown if born in the dry season and green if born in the wet. At times, genetic mutations also help animals adapt to their environment. An example would be how mutations cause the loss of dark pigmentation in the hair follicles of polar bears, allowing them to camouflage in the snow much better than dark-haired bears. Many secular scientists point to these sorts of changes as proof for the theory of evolution. But Darwin's theory included much more than microevolutionary change. The theory of evolution teaches that at one time there were no animals on earth. The reason why they're here today is because lesser species evolved into greater ones. This theory taught that human beings were just another species in the animal kingdom and that we share a common ancestor with apes. And so the theory of evolution includes the idea that simpler organisms evolve into more complex organisms. A single-celled amoeba has somehow been transformed into a fish and then a frog and so on, until eventually, through natural selection, we get millions of species that there are on Earth today. From a scientific perspective, there are real problems with the theory of evolution. In the past century, scientists have discovered that our cells are made up of millions of molecules of DNA. DNA is a molecule that, consists, that contains the genetic code of an organism. And so DNA stores information. Conservative estimate is that one cell stores 8 billion letters, the equivalent of 500 million words or of 8,000 books. Different species all have different DNA. Through mutations, a species can lose information, but they never gain it.
shows the falseness of the theory of evolution. Now, some Christians have tried to combine the view of evolution with the Bible's teaching on creation. They call their viewpoint theistic evolution. They teach that the evolution of species happened, but that it was God who guided the evolutionary process. It sounds like they want to uphold the Bible's teachings, but they don't. Evolution from one species to another requires millions of years. It requires all kinds of organisms to die before the development of the first human beings. Thus, those who believe in theistic evolution don't believe in a historical Adam and Eve. They deny the fall into sin, the immediate need for and promise of the Messiah. They deny the, world war, the worldwide flood of Genesis, all because they believe science more than they believe God. How can we know that God did not use an evolutionary process to create this world? Because of what God teaches us about creation in Genesis 1. Genesis 1.12 says that God created plants and trees, each according to their kind. Genesis 1.21 says that God created the great sea creatures and every, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds. It says that God created every winged bird according to its kind. Genesis 1.25 says that God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. One species didn't evolve into another. God created each species separately, according to its kind. Belgian Confession Article 12 summarizes this by stating that the Father has given to each creature its being, shape, and form, and to each its specific task and function to serve its creator. Both the Bible and science prove that one species cannot evolve into another. While Satan has used the theory of evolution to shipwreck the faith of many, the discovery of DNA has caused even secular scientists to doubt Darwin's theory. We need to talk about it because our society still accepts this as scientific fact. But after showing the falseness of this theory, we need to get back to the real facts. We need to focus on God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. We need to wonder, to stand amazed at His awesome work of creation. This afternoon we read from Psalm 104. It's a song that encourages believers to sing God's praise and to revel in the wonder and diversity of his work of creation. It is as we consider how great our God is that our hearts are set at rest. 
knowing God's almighty power, seeing his glory and creation around us, teaches us to find our security and peace in our Heavenly Father. For if God was so powerful and wise to make the world as he did, and surely is also powerful and wise enough to take care of me. Psalm 104 begins with the words, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The psalmist gives glory to God for the wonders of his creative work. This psalm is organized according to the six days in which God created heaven and earth. Yet instead of just recounting what and how God created the universe, in a poetic way, the psalmist praises God for his wondrous works. In Psalm 104, verse 2, the psalmist writes about how God covers himself with light as a garment. While on the first day of creation, God separated life on this earth into what he called day and night. The psalmist speaks about God being surrounded only by light. God's heavenly throne is surrounded by majesty and glory. 1 Timothy 6, 16 says that God dwells in unapproachable light. 1 John 1, verse 5 says that God is light. Revelation 21 tells us that on the new heavens and the new earth, we will not need the sun or the moon, for God will give the heavenly city light. In verse 2b, the psalmist writes about how God stretches out the heavens like a tent. It's an allusion to what God did on the second day of creation, when he separated the heavens above from the waters below. That's why in verse 3, the psalmist says that God lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. Why he speaks of God making the clouds his chariot and of him riding on the wings of the wind. The psalmist is praising God for separating the expanse of the heavens from the earth and for being ruler over all. In the verses 5 to 8, the psalmist speaks about how God set the earth on its foundations and covered even the mountains with water. He speaks of how the mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place God appointed for them. It's a reference to the third day of creation, where God separated the dry land from the seas. The psalmist notes that God set a boundary that the oceans may not pass, so they'll never cover the earth again. Our society worries about global warming, but ocean levels rising, that it'll make many parts of the world uninhabitable for man. But we know of God's promise after the flood. Reflected in this psalm, God has set a limit beyond which the seas may not pass. God confirms it with the rainbow, a reminder to him and a testimony to us of his faithfulness and care. In verse 14, the psalmist praises God for causing the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate to bring forth food. It's a further reference to the third day of creation on which God created the plants and trees bearing seed and fruit. The psalmist praises God for sustaining life on earth. 
He glorifies God for granting wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen his heart. God's goodness shines forth in his sustaining care of all the creatures he has made. In verse 19, the psalmist speaks of how God made the moon to mark the seasons and about how the sun knows its time for setting. It's a reference to the fourth day of creation on which God created sun, moon, and stars. Yet in a poetic way, the psalmist praises God for the order with which God created this world. God created time. Days are marked by the rising and setting of the sun. Months by the waxing and waning of the moon. Years by how long it takes the earth to make one orbit to the sun. In verse 25, the psalmist writes, Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. It's a reference to the fifth day of creation, when God made the fish and sea creatures according to their kinds. In verses 27 and 28, there's a reference to God's provision of food for all the creatures he has made. A reference to the sixth day of creation, when God made the land animals and man. So almost makes it clear how all God's creatures, including human beings, depend on God for their daily food even for their very existence. Beloved, we glory in God's creation of the world and all that's in it. We recognize God as creator of this world, and as such that he has a claim on this world. He is Lord and master over all. Many are not willing to accept God's claim on their life. That's why Despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, people still hang on to the theory of evolution. They don't want to acknowledge God as their creator. They don't want to be beholden to God in any way. Because if God doesn't have a claim on your life, then you can live as you please and you can do what you want. As Christians, we're different. By recognizing God as our creator, we recognize him as owner and master of our lives. We believe God has created us in his image. So we might rightly know him and heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness. We seek to honor God for his power and glory and wisdom in creation. We desire to submit our hearts and lives to him, to glorify him and live in fellowship with him. For that's precisely the purpose for which God created us. This brings us to our second point, and we'll consider our Father's loving care for us. It's striking that at the beginning of Psalm 104, the psalmist doesn't just praise God as the creator. Did you notice how he refers to God? It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. Psalmist calls the creator God, my God. God is not an impersonal being to the psalmist, as he is to many around us. 
the psalmist, and also we can call God my God because we are in relationship with him. In the Bible, God is called our Father because he is the creator of life. Moses speaks in that way in Deuteronomy 32, verse 6, asking the Israelites, Is he the Lord, not your Father, who created you, who made you and established you? Yet God has a deeper claim in our lives, beloved. He's also our Father in Jesus Christ. Our catechism refers to this when he says that he is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. Through the death of his Son, God has adopted us as his children. And so the first article of our faith teaches us to know him not just as Almighty God, but also as a loving Father. At times we stumble over the teaching that God is all-powerful and that he is our loving Father. Our difficulty is reconciling the fact that God can help with a feeling that he often doesn't help. If God is all-powerful, and if he's our loving Father, why does he allow so much misery to occur in our lives? Why does he allow my struggles, my suffering to go on and on? Because of the effects of sin in our lives, we can have great difficulty accepting God as our loving Father. God's people faced this exact same struggle. And their struggles are recorded for us in God's word. They're recorded to help us to come to terms with the fact that a loving father will at times permit his children to undergo hardships. Think of Job's situation. He lost his children and all his possessions. He was afflicted with a terrible sickness. Instead of being a helpmate, his wife encouraged him to curse God and die. His friends accused him of having committed some terrible sin that he was unwilling to confess. Job became very discouraged, so much so that he questioned God in the midst of his adversity. God responded to Job's questioning in Job 38. He reminded Job of the fact that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth and that he rules over them. God said to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And a little later, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? God asked Job many questions about whether he can provide rain or direct the wind or guide the stars. The Lord makes it plain that Job is wrong to question him in the way in which he did. For who are we as creatures to question God about the way in which he directs our lives? Isaiah deals with the same point in the last Verses of chapter 40. In times of adversity, we should not think that God is overlooking us or forgetting about us. Isaiah speaks comforting words to us about how God as our creator watches over us and provides for us. 
He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint to be weary, young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Peter tells us to find our comfort in God in times of difficulty and distress. In 1 Peter 4.19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So we see that our confession of God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, is not just a theoretical discussion about the origins of life. The fact that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth is foundational for our faith. It teaches us to put our trust in the all-powerful God, but at the same time is the overflowing fountain of all good. Beloved, put your faith and trust in God the Father. He is the creator of heaven and earth and all that's in them. This universe reveals God's glory and power and majesty. If you open your eyes and look around you, then together with the psalmist you can say, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. God is also our loving Father in Jesus Christ. He loved us so much, he was willing to give his only son to die for us. And we can also trust in his sustaining care, even as we walk through difficult struggles of life. God is all-powerful. He can help us. God is our loving Father. He will help us. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing from hymn 13.